join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the matricidal films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are talking about a real hidden gem of a movie starring the great Susan Tyrell, and that is 1981's Night Warning, also known as Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, as of this broadcast, you can find 1981's Night Warning on Shudder, archive.org, and also YouTube, but you just gotta really search hard for it. This is a movie that tackles a lot, and I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about the story as opposed to like the background, but I do want to talk about Susan Tyrell. What do you think of her in this movie? I'm trying to think of what else she has been in. So Forbidden Zone, Crybaby, John Waters' Crybaby. Uh, She was also a bartender in um, Rockula. Uh, But, I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar. Like, she's been in tons and tons of things. But she was always kind of a quirky, like, character actor, not usually in starring roles and tended to be attracted to sort of weird roles, as I think you might expect. But yeah, I, I I always think of her in this and in uh, Forbidden Zone first. Well, yeah, obviously Forbidden Zone. But besides this and Forbidden Zone, I don't think I've seen her in anything else off the top of my head. Well, you should remedy that. Assuming you like her here, do you think she's great? Oh, yes, she's great. Like, yeah, she I think I mean, spoiler, I think this is a good movie. But even if you don't, it's worth watching just for Susan Tyrell. Or for that matter, Bo Svensson, who is also fantastic in this movie. He plays the uh, the detective. Yeah, that guy is... It doesn't really feel like a performance. That's a real person. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing performance. Um, it, the, honestly, the, like, if this were not a horror movie, if it had not been marketed and titled and treated like a horror movie it would have won Academy Awards and stuff like the acting and the quality of the filmmaking here, I think is exceptional. It it just happens to be that horror movies really don't get any respect, but I'd put these two actors up against, you know, any Oscar winning performance. I I think they're both fantastic. I want to read you a few of the things that Susan Tyrell said about herself. And this is just from IMDb, but this quote just, it really summed her up for me. And this is an aside, but my understanding is she she did not see this movie until very late in life. And she always thought it was horrible and told people that it was bad and not to watch it. But then when she finally did watch it, she liked it. That is strange. Isn't it? So she intentionally avoided it. Yeah. Because she I guess she just didn't want to see herself in a shitty film. I guess I've, I've never obviously I've never acted in anything, but. Let's say you're an actor and you knowingly 
have have figured out after the fact or convinced yourself that after the fact after shooting is wrapped that this movie is going to be ass do you ever watch it or do you like protect your mental health and just pretend like collect your paycheck and pretend it never happened so first off i would say that if i was in a movie like that i would just nicholas cage it right like just overact wildly and make myself a unique uh, art exhibit within the movie right but um regardless of whether the movie was bad or not i would don't know if i'd want to watch myself in a movie i might never watch my movies if i was an actor i would just be really uncomfortable watching myself which is weird because i obviously don't mind listening to myself i edit these podcasts every week um and i i speak in front of groups of people uh for a living but um, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't want to see myself in a movie. I'd be too self-conscious. Maybe it's one of those things where it's really uncanny at first, but then after you've done it so many times, become inoculated to it. And then you can start to objectively watch these films. Yeah, perhaps. But anyway, she says, I'm a loner. I don't like beautiful people, but I find beauty in the grotesque and in the sweet soul inside someone who has been able to get through their life without being a rat's ass. Such people should be collected, should be swept up immediately and kept in a box of broken people. I've collected people my whole life. Sometimes it ends badly, but it's absolutely never on my part because I know how fabulous I am. You're just going to have to take my word for it. I'm an incredible person. I do good deeds and I love people. But the only way I can do these things is to stay apart because you can just stand so much. But the people who you meet in your life, who cross your path, the ones who are decent should be collected. What do you think of that? Artsy and um, maybe kind of serial killer-ish. I mean, what, what, who are we putting in the box here? What parts are we putting in the box? I don't know. I, I identify with this 100%. I mean, I don't literally cut up people and put them in boxes right but um but <laughs> I, i'm say that you can't incriminate yourself i'm a pretty introverted person but i also don't like to be a like i go and be alone to recharge and then i want to be social for a little while but i only really want to be social with people who i know and like and that makes meeting anybody new really difficult but I'm kind of at the age where I don't care about that anymore. So anyway, her her perspective really interests or really I really identify with it. And I agree that like I find beauty in the grotesque. That's why I like movies like this and like John Waters. And I, it's very fitting that she went on to work with John Waters. But the only other thing I wanted to read by her is apparently uh, the last thing her mother ever said to her was, your life is a celebration of everything that is cheap and tawdry. She says, I've always liked that, and I've always tried to live up to it. So, I, I mean, do you get the sense that she was just a wacky person? I think you can get that sense from just the films that she's starred in, uh, assuming they're all as bizarre as, you know, Forbidden Zone and this one. So yeah, I think she's I think she's incredible here. It doesn't help that I have a bias or a penchant, as I've said in the past, for films with uh, evil mother characters. Oh um, yes, oh yeah. I bet this one hit all checked all the boxes for you. Oh, this is one of the greatest of all time. It, 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 
uh, Susan Tyrell in this is right up there with Ruth Roman and the baby. Like they might be the reigning queens for me of like hag horror. I mean, there's there's Betty Davis. There's Betty Davis and whatever happened to baby Jane and her performance there is fantastic, but it's not the same. It's not a mother. Hold up. Did you say hag horror? (laughs) Yeah. That's... (laughs) That sounds very disrespectful. It, it's an actual like it's a it's a it's a term that critics use. I, I don't know, um, or they used at the time. So it it is considered a genre. Yeah, I would not define either of those two mothers as hags. You can certainly come up with a bunch of um, uh, descriptions for them, but hags that that comes with a lot of connotation. Yeah, I'm not saying it's fair. I'm just saying it exists. It's a term, right? Um, and I'm trying to identify for people what I'm talking about. But I'd say my other favorite hag horror actress is, um, is what's her name, who we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, Shelley Winters. She's fantastic in these kinds of movies, too. But Bose Vinson, who plays the um, detective, I mean, he was in tons and tons and tons of things, right? Like, he, he he's... Uh, he has 121 acting credits on IMDb. So he, he's a prolific actor, but this is the best movie. This is his best performance that I've ever seen. Because like you said, he just embodies, like nothing seems artificial. Nothing seems practiced or rehearsed. Everything just seems to be a natural outgrowth of his like deep prejudice and hatred. And if you've never met anyone like this, um, you probably don't live in the South. Yeah. I mean, there are people in the North like this too. They just won't tell it to your face <laughs> the way yeah. the people in the South will. Well, and I mean, they won't have the same, uh, the same like Southern draw, you know? Yeah. What did you think of our main character played by Jimmy McNichol? Gosh. Um, so, uh, you know, the full disclosure, I finished this movie maybe... 15 20 minutes uh before we started recording so this is all very fresh in my mind but my my initial impression of this guy is that well this movie in general seems to try to purposely flip some tropes especially for the 80s and it really seemed like this guy was kind of turned into um what a like a main white actress would be in a slasher film, but they just like gender bended him her to, to this guy. Like, even though he's a scholarship bound, uh, you know, high school athlete prime of his life, he's pretty helpless for the most part. He's, he spends this entire movie getting victimized and that's his entire personality, right? Am I missing anything? No, I think you're right on. And I think that it's even more of a subversion of expectations because I've never seen Jimmy McNichol and anything else, but apparently he was a big star at the time. Um, he was known for Little House on the Prairie and uh, The Fitzpatrick's, another, I guess, family TV show, a TV show called California Fever. So he was he was kind of a celebrity and seen as like a teen heartthrob. So to put him in a role like this is really interesting i think and and subverts expectations and i think he's fine in the movie but when you're acting alongside susan tyrell and bo svenson i think 
as long as you don't look like you stand out, I think you're doing okay. Yeah. So I would say that if there are any issues with his performance, it's more with like just the fact that his character is supposed to be a pushover. And the fact that he portrayed that image so perfectly throughout the film is is probably the best praise you can get for him. He, he definitely filled that niche. The last thing I think we should talk about before we play the trailer is William Asher, the director. He was mostly known for directing TV episodes. Uh, I think this was one of his few films. He directed Bad News Bears, Dukes of Hazard, um, Bewitched. I think he did. He did Patty Duke, Shirley Temple. Um, I love Lucy. So it, this is what he was known for. And then he goes and does this really like kind of perverted horror film. D- does this kind of? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a little tame compared to some other stuff we've we've covered, but this this is not tame by normie standards. Part of what I think his impact on the movie is is he makes it seem tamer than it is. The content here is so subversive and so um, just sort of oddball, I guess, but it's filmed kind of like a a made-for-TV movie, just very matter-of-fact, very directly. It's not flashy. He's not trying to, like, use horror tropes like jump scares. It's a very odd direction to me. I'm not sure it works perfectly for the movie, but it's fine. I, I don't. I, it does what it does. It's distinctive. And I do appreciate that. I'm really glad you mentioned that the director was into all of that shit because I had no idea, um, you know, what this guy had done previously. And my first thought when I saw the credits was this looks like the start of like a Hallmark original. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not directed like one, though. The, the direction is much more... Um, I don't want to say competent, but like more uh, untraditional, maybe. Eh. Yeah, yeah. It it definitely there's more like there's more like uh, stylized shots and shit. It it feels well directed, but it it's not directed like a horror movie for the most part, and I think that gives it a very interesting feel, um, especially given like the disturbing content. Like just for example, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but the opening scene with the car accident is like a horrific gruesome i think one of the iconic deaths in horror honestly but it's not filmed the way like lucio fulci would film it right it's just filmed kind of matter of fact like look at this thing that happened and it was it just lets the horror speak for itself right (laughs) hey look what i found like we don't we don't zoom in on the body after it's fallen off the cliff, right? There, there's no eerie music that's building up to it. It's not it's not filmed that way. I, I will say that there is um, there seems to be like a struggle with how far this guy wants to turn the dial up, right? Like there's a lot of parts in this movie where things are like pseudo subtle. Like, you know, it stays in like the one to two range. And then out of nowhere, it just goes straight to 10 for a very small amount of time. And then it back down. I think that's middle ground. (laughs) I think that's mostly thanks to Susan Tyrell and Bo Svensson. I I think that 
I mean, they're both actors that are very comfortable going over the top. And it seems like the director just kind of let them do their thing. And so there are points where they totally take over the movie. I uh, just to talk about this traffic accident, like there's just so it, there's like really, um, I would say, believable, realistic things that happen. Right. And then there's other things that just go so extra, so hard. Can we talk about this traffic accident before the trailer? Can sure. Out of the way. OK. Yeah. You have a happily married couple in a car driving on a mountainside road. They find out their brakes don't work. And so there is a uh, there's a montage of them of this guy trying to get control of the wheel, swerving between traffic, avoiding trying to roll off the side of the mountain. And it'll finally the car runs into the back of a logging truck that's fully loaded with inventory. The log goes through the windshield, decapitates the driver. Um, best case scenario, I guess it would be like an internal decapitation. And then the woman who's in the passenger seat, the wife, is left trying to keep this car from veering off the road, which she can't do because this is a horrible situation that's out of control. The car rolls off the cliff. She is screaming the entire time as the car rolls down the hill or hits front first into the ground, rolls over onto its back, and then after a brief wait, the car explodes. It's so extra. Like, did the car really need to explode, Luke? No, but they always do. Do they? It's just, it's just a rule of movies. It, <laughs> you could throw a penny at a car and it explodes. I just like how it's delayed. Like, there's like a couple seconds of just, did she make it? Oh, no, she did not make it. <laughs> but the most horrific thing about that scene to me isn't the decapitation. It's afterwards when she's trying to climb over his body and out the window. And like, this is her husband whose yeah. head is, uh, you know, 180 degrees backwards. Um, it's a very disturbing moment. And uh, this will not be the only one. And apparently this scene was um, was totally lifted for one of the... Uh, Final Destination movies, but I actually have not seen any of those. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> I, don't, I do not want to get into Final Destination right now. All right. Well, we'll skip that. Uh, let's play the trailer, and then we can talk about this, uh, this bonker story. So shocking. So terrifying. So powerful. Night Warning has been named Best Horror Film of the Year by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. Billy and Julie, young, innocent, in love. It was all a mistake. They didn't go looking for trouble. They were just too curious. Without knowing, they've uncovered a deadly secret. By accident, they've stumbled onto a grisly murder. Now, they know too much to live. chilling tale of a young boy and girl, innocent victims, now 
targets of a frenzied obsession with murder. See the award-winning Night Warning. That's a charmingly irrelevant tra- trailer yeah. or misleading, I suppose. Uh, they don't really uncover anything except maybe the very end of the film. And at that point, shit was already going south. I don't think that guy opening the box really uh, affected what was going to follow at all. No, it's they're trying to market the movie as a, like a slasher movie. I understand why they they took that route. And I, I also, by the way, the title was changed, right? So um, the the original title, which the movie is primarily known as now, was Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Uh, but the studio released it as Night Warning because they, I literally think they reached into a hat with a bunch of generic slasher movie title names in it and just drew one out because I don't know how else you get the title Night Warning. But I actually like it better. I hate the the Butcher Baker title. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of partial to Butcher Baker after seeing this film. I would I wasn't prior, but I think I like it more. Uh, I dislike both, but all right. So yeah, I understand why they marketed it that way, but the that trailer does not describe this film, um, really at all. So speaking of the plot, we already talked about the beginning of this movie. The people driving are Billy's parents, um, as far as we know, right. What was your first impression of Susan Tyrell, who is apparently his aunt, who we see bidding them farewell as they drive off to die? All right. So I knew absolutely nothing about this movie going into it. And right off, you can just see she has a crazed look in her eyes. And I don't know if it's acting or natural, but it's there. She looks insane. Yes, she does. And um, my first thought as they were rolling out of the driveway is that those brakes were cut. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, if the car doesn't immediately explode in the driveway, those brakes are going to are going to fail at some point. I didn't think they were going to be going on some sort of mountain venture though. That was out of left field. The Billy at this point is only like a toddler, but the camera freeze frames on Susan Tyrell's Susan Tyrell holding him and two things are clear. Susan Tyrell's character, Aunt Cheryl, is batshit crazy. She is obsessed with Billy, and Billy looks terrified. And I think that that's that's really smart. I like the way the movie starts. Apparently, originally, they wanted to keep the fact that she was like a villain hidden until the end of the movie and have it be like a big reveal. I think that's a terrible idea. I don't think you would have a movie at that point. No, what makes this movie is is understanding and watching the psychology of her character. And if you don't know everything she's doing, if you're not seeing things from her point of view, you miss out on all of that. She does a remarkable transformation throughout this film. From, oh, yeah, she definitely changes. From, uh, you know, crazy eccentric aunt to woman who probably should be on medication that doesn't exist yet because it's 1981 to finally murder goblin so let's go through the various quirks eccentricities this character has 
first of all, what do you think exactly her feelings are towards 17-year-old Billy? After the car accident, there is a time jump of, if I remember right, 12 years? Does that sound right? 12, 14? Uh, yeah, I just know he's 17 when we jump yeah. forward. So he, we, we, he is now at the tender age of 17. And I'm sure this guy is like a young adult at this point, like the actor. But he was he, 19. He actually looks like a, he could be in high school. Like, oh, yeah. Boomer high school. They just don't see that very often in these films. So like crazy casting. decision. Well, sorry. Sorry to cut you off, but he was 19. But the girl who plays Julie, his girlfriend, she was 30. Yeah, no, she is definitely older. Um, yeah. Billy is when we're introduced to Billy as, um, you know, a 17 year old, he's sleeping in before school and we get the aunt coming in. And right off the bat, man, like there's there's you have to call the cards are on the table face up. This movie isn't hiding anything. She is wearing like her nightgown, goes into the room sits on the edge of his bed gently and starts making purring noises into his ear as she like gently <laughs> scratches him with the like the tips of her fingernails she's like you have to wake up or whatever the fuck she says like right <laughs> off the bat man you know that this woman is going to be extremely possessive of this kid for the entire film i mean Obviously, even if you hadn't seen the fact that, you know, she probably killed his parents. Yeah, she <laughs> notwithstanding that. <laughs> I mean, that's the drive for everything that happens in the movie. The impetus is that she is possessive and wants Billy to stay with her, like not go off to college, not be with Julie, just be with her. But it's weird because the way she treats him is a combination of like baby talk and infantilizing him with weird incestuous sexuality it's but like she never really makes the attempt right to actually go through anything overtly like sexual right i don't know if she's interested like the other characters in the movie keep trying keep asking like why she doesn't date or why doesn't she have you know a, a man to live with and she she keeps saying, I'm not interested in any of that. And you could read that as she's just interested in Billy. Yeah. Or you could read it as she's just kind of an asexual person or that her sexual desires manifest differently. It's not about having sex. It's about like protecting and grooming and mothering this kid. And and I don't think we can really relate to this, but, you know, that could be a kink, right? From like a, a woman's point of view. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I think lots of people play with, you know, like mommy kid, daddy kid relationship dynamics. I, I think that's fairly common. But he, <laughs> no, that, that is not to associate those people with Susan Tyrell in this movie because it, everything I, I think what's really going on is I think that she's just like a textbook narcissist. And that she sees everything through the lens of her desires and anything that contradicts her desires is like, you know, injustice or injustice. And so I don't think she holds herself to any ethical standards. No, definitely not. Um, she comes off as like the typical American Christian where 
she's doing all this really hor- like horrendous shit or like at least she's living her life you know against like nor what she would perceive normal values to be but then when she sees that in other people she becomes immediately aggressive judgmental and um in, in this case uh hostile mm-hmm. <laughs> like for example once she finds out that billy and his girlfriend are sexually active that completely changes um her behavior towards that character what's the girlfriend's name julie julie yeah you know she starts calling julie a slut you know don't get her get away from my son or get away from billy you know all that mess i think that's the moment in the movie where she truly snaps i mean she's unhinged the whole time yeah okay so here's a question about her character um because i i couldn't really um make this determination right off the bat is she really that overtly crazy the entire film or is it or are we and we're just like slowly becoming aware of it as the movie goes on or does is there a breaking point is there a point where she does in fact snap i i do think there is i think that i think that she's suffering from like mental illness and uh the entire movie and it's clear that she's had uh, these um breakdowns in the past like when she killed we ultimately find out when she killed um, Billy's father. But I think the the new breaking point is when she catches Billy with Julie, because that is the final sort of nail in the coffin of her fantasy that Billy is just going to be with her forever. Oh, his purity is ruined. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Now she has competition. She finds a condom in his wallet before she wakes him up in the morning and but then in the next scene she tells him he he's at he, the next day is his birthday and he asks if he can invite julie for dinner and uh oh. cheryl is like no i'll be your date tomorrow and it, it's oh, okay <laughs> yeah he just say he accepts it but yeah, that's whatever, one thing i think the line exactly is whatever makes you happy and then she goes you make me happy <laughs> or you make me happiest, something along the. Well, one thing I think this movie does really, really well is that it's clear Billy just doesn't know anything different. Yeah. Right. No, like it, this is the woman who's raised him his entire life. She's been, I assume, this protective and this sheltering his entire life. And so for him, this dynamic they have is normal. He, he just doesn't know anything different. Yeah. This behavior is normalized. It, it, you know, this is jumping ahead, but in there's a scene where he there's a scene where he tells her that um, he might get a scholarship to college, an athletic scholarship. And this is the first scene, thing, time in the movie we really see her break. Um, and she says that college is for kids with brains and rich kids. You wouldn't fit in there. Like, that's it. <laughs> It's awful. And then she slaps him in the face and says that he owes her for the past 14 years. It, it's it's very narcissistic. I think she's just trying to pull out all the stops to get him from leaving because Billy is her entire world. Yeah, but I also think she loses control of herself. So like she ends up killing multiple people, right? But she talks with her dead boyfriend who is Billy's father in the basement 
And at one point, she well, tells we say actually Billy's father. Um, yeah, right. Okay, um, we should probably just let let the big secret out now, right? Before we like get too far ahead, which doesn't really feel like a secret. No, it's kind it, of weird too. Um, but but essentially, uh, Billy ends up being the actual son of his aunt and another man that we never actually meet. And then for whatever reason, that Billy is then adopted by her sister and her husband, the married couple that were in the car that, you know, tragically were beheaded and plunged to their death and exploded. And the motivation was just she wanted full custody of Billy back. And I'm assuming maybe that discussion happened in the family and they told her no, maybe because they knew she was fucking crazy. Yeah, it's not really stated. But that is the big secret. That is the big reveal. And um, I think we can, now that we have the context, we can keep going. So, yeah, I think that when Cheryl is talking with Billy's father's corpse in the basement. (laughs) Yes, naturally. She says something like, I didn't mean to kill that man. And and she's talking about her first murder victim in the movie um, that we actually see her do. And... uh, And so it suggests to me that she's not really in control either. Like, I think she's very reactive to her own craziness, so to speak. Like, she's just trying to keep up with all the crazy things she's doing. While we're on the topic of the fact that she is keeping her um, dead baby daddy's body in the basement or the attic or whatever, how big do you think this house is? Because we never see the whole thing, but it feels like a mansion, right? How do you keep shit like that hidden for so long from other people? This woman has a shrine dedicated to this man, a portrait that she speaks to, his head in a jar, and the rest of his corpse, like, mummified, kind of, just laying on a table, and nobody came across this. And and, in addition to that, there's a point where the aunt sets up a room for Billy upstairs and we're going to clear out part of the attic so we can make you a nice apartment. And it's like a smaller room that's very claustrophobic, but this room had a bunch of shit in it. She had to clear out and it's like nobody went in there. There was a rat living in that room. Yeah, no, it's clear when there's a point where Billy sneaks up there to look at something and it's clear he's never been up there before. Like how big is this house? (laughs) I don't know. I think I think it's just like, all right, so we know that Billy's personality is that he's he's submissive to Cheryl, at least. And if Cheryl just told him from the time he was a child, like, look, you don't go in the attic and you don't go in the basement ever. He seems like the kind who would obey. But the main the, what we're getting to is that Cheryl concocts this scheme. And by the way, I don't think Cheryl's that smart. Um, she does a lot of stupid shit in this movie. Uh, <laughs> no, she is not a criminal mastermind. No, and she doesn't have any of this planned up. She's just making shit up as she goes along. Because, like the Billy going to college thing, for example, she goes back and forth on yelling at him angrily that he's not going, and then pretending that she's okay with it. And it's like, which strategy are you trying to pursue here? Right? I don't think she knows. But anyway, she thinks that if she has the TV repairman attempt to rape her, 
that that will show Billy that she needs him to stay and protect her. But it doesn't instead of a rape, he rejects her and she murders him in fury. I kind of thought the rejection might have been part of the plan, but no, I guess it wouldn't have been. She wouldn't have foresaw that. No, I really don't think I really think that she thought, of course, he'll go for me. Like, of, that's why she tries to seduce him. And of course, he'll he'll want to be with me. And then when Billy gets here, I'll pretend that I'm being raped. And then Billy will come and protect me and save me from the TV repairman. Like but, in my head, I just always assumed that that man was dead. Like he was, she was going to murder him regardless. But you're right. I guess it was originally just supposed to be like a, a fake rape plan. Yeah, we really don't staged, know. Staged crime. We really don't know until she tells the dead boyfriend that she didn't mean to, to kill the man. But what kills the man is her rage, right? She's so furious at being rejected. Um, she ends up stabbing him, and then Billy gets there. And so she's trying to tell the police that it was attempted rape, and she killed him in self-defense. The police think that she's covering for Billy, and Billy is the one who killed him. Did this seem like a realistic scenario to you? Mm, at the time, they wouldn't really have any reason to believe Billy killed him. But yeah. they do uncover some circumstantial um, evidence with the investigation that could certainly be used to build a case, although, um, it, you know, it would still be it, the evidence would not really be solid. It would just be an idea, like um, a hunch as to what happened. But we know the truth. The audience knows the truth. Right. So let's talk about the other major dimension of this movie, and then we'll get to Bose Vincent, who's kind of in the middle. Billy is on the basketball team, and his coach, who he's really close with, the detective discovers was the secret lover of the TV repairman who Aunt Cheryl murders. So the detective pushes him to resign, and he ends up resigning from his job at the school but the what the police think is that he and the tv repairman and billy were in some sort of love triangle and billy murdered one of them in a some sort of lover's fight let's not just gloss over this because we're making it seem like a minor footnote the detective confronts the basketball coach with the murder victim's ring which basically is the same as the ring that the coach is wearing, right? That's that's the the giveaway. So the coach can't deny this at all. He is completely trapped because they have rings with you know matching initials and shit on them. He's he's they got him. They got him outed. But the detectives doesn't just tell him or suggest that he should resign. He's like, you should resign before you know. The people lynch you. Yeah, he says there's going to be a lynching. There's there's like hate crime suggested here by law enforcement. And uh, what do you do in the situation? You got to get the fuck out of town. Yeah, and it really, it actually really shocks me the 
the degree to which this movie identifies and portrays in a positive light a homosexual relationship. Because in 1981, this would have been like far out. Not like just that, but the, the 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 fact that this man is played by someone that you would describe as just like normal vanilla, right? Yeah. Like he's not urban. He's not like super like urbanized. There's no lisp. He's not like super stylish or manicured. He's just your regular average American Joe who just happens to be gay. This movie does not get like attention for this, but I honestly think this has to be one of the first positive portrayals of a gay person in a movie ever. Definitely in a horror movie. I mean, it sucks that he's like on the other end of like so much hate, but I mean, hey, he got the rep- representation in at least. Right. And, and the movie clearly wants us to sympathize with him and not with the detective. Like it it portrays the detective's homophobia as the backwards, ignorant, stupid thing. And that just I don't think that was a common uh, position in 1981. I was really not expecting that. Yeah, it, it's a it's really like a, a wonderful, interesting, nuanced aspect of this movie that doesn't get nearly enough attention. You know, and I like the relationship that Billy has with the coach um, and the coach before he leaves, you know, for the last time says, like, call me if you ever need anything like I'll be there to support you, even though he knows the police think that they're lovers and are trying to, like, smear him with that. So he just seems like a really genuinely good person. Well, not really the last time, but the uh, what was supposed to be the last time. Right. So this character, um, the coach, is played by Steve Easton. And so Steve Easton was, I mean, a fairly prolific actor. Uh, he's still acting today. Um, so it would have been doubly interesting for, like, th- this wasn't a career killer for him. I think that that's really interesting. Like, could this have been a career killer? I think so. For In the 80s, though? I mean, you would have, you could have definitely got roles in movies like this. Like you could have had a career like Susan Tyrell's, but it kind of surprises me that you would be in this role and be in and be in 160 movies, you know, afterwards. Um, but what did you think of his performance? He really just comes off as like a believable everyday man. Like they don't try to gussy up his performance or his appearance he's just some guy trying to make a living as a teacher and you know he keeps his own shit to himself what also makes this movie really respectable while we're at the high school is it doesn't have any of the tropes of 1980s high school movies where like we see in the girls locker room and all the (laughs) girls are topless and we we fall like we get a little bit of bullying actually bill paxton's in this movie and he plays sort of a bit a bully that makes fun of makes fun of billy for being close with the coach Uh, but spending too much time in his office what were you doing in there uh uh-huh it uh, as an aside bill paxton tried out for the lead in this movie um, but they didn't pick him because they felt like they needed a celebrity. Um, oh. And 
So, but it's ironic because like now Bill Paxton's better known than uh, Jimmy McNichol. But what Paxton is in maybe two scenes in this whole film. I was kind of surprised they stopped using him. Yeah. But he completely drops off the basketball team after like the halfway point of the film. Well, I I actually like it, though. I I like that we don't get those typical high school tropes. It it makes this movie feel more real. Um, And you have to have some grounding in this movie because Susan Tyrell and Bo Svensson go so big. You need like normalcy around them to anchor their performances. We do see Billy's booty. Indeed. uh, we We do get a little bit of top action from the ant very briefly. Well, we see murdering the TV repairman. We see Julie topless. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's your exploitation, everybody. Yeah, there's definitely some here. And you definitely have uh, uh, plot details that are exploitive. Um, Speaking of which, let's talk about the detective. All right. How would you summarize this character? He is both a caricature and a real person. Yeah. Everything this man does seems extremely believable with the exception of one. I guess this is one of those times where the dial was turned to 10 for no reason. There's a one off scene barely worth mentioning where there is a ongoing conflict between the lead detective and one of his subordinates where the subordinates like, yo, I don't think your, your whole theory of the gay love triangles, right. And of course the superior detective, what's his name again? Detective Joe Carlson. Carlson. All right. So detective Carlson here is taking offense to the fact that anybody is questioning his interpretation of the evidence, but there's a scene where the subordinate comes into his office and Detective Carlson here has what I'm assuming is an illegal immigrant being interrogated in his office. And he makes him sit on the floor. Yeah, he tells the dude to sit on the floor. <laughs> like he starts to sit in a chair and the detective is like, no, down here. And it's in like broken Spanish yeah. the whole time. And, and then uh, Carlson pulls up his office chair to sit at like crotch height to this dude's head, pulls out his revolver and starts to like get into asking questions before he's interrupted. And I don't know where this scene came from or why they wanted to include it, (laughs) but that was probably the most cartoonish thing that he did the entire film. Everything else is very grounded up until the very end of the film. I think that, like, I think a lot of him, sure, it's histrionic, but I think that he sells it. Like, I think his performance is good enough where you believe that this is really just a sort of larger than life person. Like, I totally believe that he makes Mexicans sit on the floor and I that establishes his character so well. Like, this guy is every ist that's him racist (laughs) sexist homophobic he uh, he is a walking like example of toxic everything right but his performance seems so real to me that i i buy it it's because personalities like this tend to be attracted towards positions of law and authority 
this man assuming it like he was real has a very clear image in his head of how the world is supposed to work who is causing the problems who needs to be protected and the societal order that needs to be maintained and he will his per like his personal convictions he has no doubts that this is exactly how everything needs to be and he will do everything within his professional and personal power to ensure that that balance stays like status quo yeah he's he's absolutist in all respects right but he i don't even know where to start with him because like there's so much um that i feel like we should discuss but he is he wants billy punished or dead and it doesn't matter if billy was the murderer he thinks billy is gay or in his words a fag right and you hear that word a lot trigger warning yeah and and so if you're a fag then to to Bose Fenson's character, you deserve to die. And that's the end of it. Um, and that seems to be his approach to most things. But I actually thought that his subordinate, uh, Sergeant Cook, I, this was the character I sympathized with the most in the movie. For whatever reason, I just, I so was so frustrated along with him that every time he makes a totally reasonable point, the detective dismisses it utterly. And with with uh, with aggression, <laughs> right? I, I think this is a common problem, not just in law enforcement, but in like workplaces in general that have hierarchies where, you know, someone gets up top that obviously just makes really shitty decisions that might be based either in incompetence or personal vendettas. And you are absolutely powerless to stop it. So we've actually got a really complex story here for, especially for a horror film where you've got Cheryl killing people. And also she gradually starts to drug and try to control Billy. You've got the detective who thinks Billy is guilty because he's in this gay love triangle. You've got Billy's girlfriend who seems to have some sincere doubts she's like why don't we sleep together more often you know but it it for the most part she's really in love with him and totally on his side and you've got all these different plot strands intersecting in actually really effective ways like i've never really thought about it before but this is a really good writing and directing job to make this complex of a story work yeah, this this movie has a lot of work and parts, and I think it's very well composed, except for I think the very end is a little weak, but we will get to that. Can we talk about when Cheryl really starts to go off the deep end? Gosh, like there's so many different points to pick, right? Are we going with when she decides to chop all of her hair off? I mean, that's like the classic, the classic crazy person move, right? She uh-huh. does all of the, she does all the archetypal things. But what, what really got me the first moment where I was like, that this is, there's no coming back from this is when she's forcing poisoned milk down Billy's throat and yelling, drink it. And then licks the spilt milk from Billy's neck. <laughs> 
And Susan Tyrell sells this scene so well. This, this, I, this is the craziest moment in the movie to me. Um, it, it's when Susan Tyrell, because after this, you really only see her killing people and laughing maniacally as she runs at the camera. Like she's doing Jack Nicholson in the shining style acting here. Yeah. You know, along with like the whole edible complex serial murder, you also have Munchausen syndrome by proxy. She's happy to poison Billy so that he performs badly at the basketball game. That's supposed to be attended by scouts who are going to decide this scholarship. That's like, when it starts. Yeah. She, then, she has no qualms. No, none at all. Um, we it does. We're not told the milk is poisoned at first, but you know, right? Like I knew as soon as he started drinking that milk, I was like, you're fucking done. Because she is switching, right? The night before she slapped him and said like, you want to abandon me and all that. And now she's trying to apologize. And we already know based on her performance that she's not someone who ever doubts herself or thinks she might be wrong. So we know she's being insincere. But it, it eventually we see her poisoning milk and her acting here is brilliant. She's like, she looks around her shoulder in, in like paranoia. But then, you know, as soon as she's pouring the milk in, she's kind of laughing to herself and she has this glee and this excitement in her eyes. It's, it's really wild. What did, what did you, what do you think the craziest, uh, the craziest Aunt Cheryl moment in this movie is? Mm, spoiler i suppose but i don't know how you would think the movie would never come to this point billy and (laughs) cheryl are struggling in the living room near the end of the film and they're attacking each other and there's a point where billy is able to get leverage by picking up what i think is a letter opener and stabbing her right in the heart she then sort of convulses a little bit and then kisses him on the mouth before falling flopping onto the floor (laughs) i think that was it for me and but just to, to paint the picture if you haven't seen this they're both covered in blood their own and other people's (laughs) in the middle of the living room with all the furniture knocked over and shit and and don't forget that moments later after she has died, she pops back up Michael Myers style and runs at him with a dagger. I really think this is just a very intricate slasher film. It is. I mean, at the, it, it, there is a metamorphosis here, right? Where Susan Tyrell gradually becomes more and more, you know, Jason Voorhees, um, you know, relentlessly coming after them with knives. But it really works to get there. Again, I, I think she turns into a murder goblin at the end. The, the fucked up haircut, the hunched back, the maniacal like grins and laughter and the fucking dead eyes. Well, they're not really dead, more like killing eyes. She turns into a murder goblin at the end of the film. And this it, it even does other silly slasher things, right? So like Julie... I thought Julie died like three times. Oh, yeah. She is bulletproof, dude. Yeah. Even if she survives, she would have traumatic brain damage 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's true. So spoiler, er everyone in this movie who you want to survive pretty much survives, except for the um, the police sergeant. But uh, you know that they're not going to be okay. (laughs) Like, you know, they're going to be permanently damaged. I I was like, there's no way they're going to kill Julie. And then I thought they killed her. And then some uh, miraculously she wasn't. And then I thought they killed her. And then she was miraculously not. I think that's probably the the closest thing to a cop out you could say about this script. But you can allow it. She gets clocked in the head with a, a fucking meat mallet. And then just wakes up later in the fucking attic and, and just leaves. I'm Only to be chased down outside and both drowned and beat with a rock again in the head. And somehow survives that. I'm so glad you brought up the meat tenderizer scene because Aunt Cheryl in the scene, as soon as you, as soon as she picks up the meat tenderizer, you know that like this is going to be an escalating situation. But then she gradually, like she starts just hitting the meat like normal, and then she escalates to smacking it wildly as she cries. It's a really just beautiful moment what's crazy at this scene is started by billy suggesting that julie distract his mother so he can go rooting around in old family belongings to figure out just why his aunt is so fucking nuts it's a terrible idea i know my first thought was well that's how you get your girlfriend killed right billy's not a smart person either really he's 17 right like we can sort of cut him some slack he seems like a blissfully naive sort of person right but he has no interest in bettering like in furthering his understanding he is happy to trust whatever aunt cheryl and girlfriend julie tell him such a good boy in some ways this is just like the baby where you have an infantilized main character that he has never been allowed to make decisions for himself. Of course, he's wanting to just trust blindly what other people tell him. Well, I mean, he's got a little bit more agency than that, but I see the point you're making. I think he develops some agency as the movie goes on, too. Yeah, he like def- Telling his girlfriend to put herself in harm's way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. but, but speaking of the cop-out, I debate whether I appreciate the um, the on text epilogue that we get at the end. I don't appreciate that. <laughs> the the on screen text. Um, it what, as the movie's closing, my thought is like, all right, so everyone I wanted to live lived, but they were going to be fucking horrified, disturbed in perpetual legal trouble for the rest of their lives right and billy's probably going to jail for murder because he shoots the 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 detective look can Um, we talk about how absurd this fucking ending is like we we talked about how well crafted this entire movie be and it is but i think this end is just so convoluted well how else do you how else do you resolve all of the plot strands so everything with with the Cheryl between Cheryl and the family members, that's all fine. But I think the whole police detective losing his gun and getting shot with it, that's a little that's a little out there, man. 
I think it would have been more realistic to just have him be sort of like a surviving evil figure just to let these, you know, the survivors know that even though they may have made it out of this situation, they're still in hot water with like, or vaguely in hot water. And so everyone needs to fucking watch themselves. Yeah, I would have the rest of the movie end as normal. I wanted him to I wanted him to live. Um, I thought it would have been better thematically as well. But I get what they're going for, right? Where you're going to have like a William Shakespeare or Quentin Tarantino style final shootout where all of the characters are brought to the same setting and you get to see justice resolve itself. Like I, I understand what they're doing. Um, it's not what I would have done, but I, I don't necessarily think it's bad. It feels fan servicey. It was like it's throwing you a catharsis bone. Like here you go, guys. I do think the the epilogue does that. So it tells us that Billy stood trial, but he was found innocent by reason of temporary insanity, and he's uh, attending college in Denver with Julie. And I totally don't believe that. I would really like to see. <laughs> Okay, a court case where a police officer's murder was thrown out for a justification of like reason of insanity. I don't think that really happens in this in that case. I think they should have ended this movie without that the on-screen epilogue and yes. if they had done that then I would be left with the the vague sense of dread that like there wasn't anything good in these people's futures. Um, and I think that that's more horrifying and more uh, effective than what we get in this movie, which seems kind of unbelievable at worst and maybe pandering. You know what? You're right. If, if the, the crazy ass ending didn't have that, that ending synopsis perhaps i would have found it more palatable but together like holding hands it's too much yeah no i i totally get that and it's the only moment of the movie that i i really feel ambivalent about um but you know for the rest of the film the rest of the film you should not let it tarnish too much it's just it's just a shame it's like i'm you're watching like uh say like an olympic like event with like some someone some gymnastics on the high bars and they do everything fucking right and then when they hit the ground they like have the one step afterwards that's that's what you're watching well i'm reminded of uh, another movie that i felt like really jumped the shark in the last minute and that was um that was macabre where the head comes alive right yes. in the final scene but but that is far more egregious than this this is not that bad to me because this is, yeah, it's far-fetched. It seems kind of preposterous, but I don't think it violates the spirit of any of the characters. I don't think it like, like assuming everything goes perfectly, then it seems like a natural progression that these two would go off to college. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Assuming they, you know, Billy didn't spend his life in prison. Right. It's it's not while it seems unbelievable, it's not violating the spirit of the characters. I think that's what's most important. But I mean, it's been a while since we've done macabre. Um, but I didn't mind the ending so much, but I fucking hated that synopsis text at the end. It was more it was worse than this film for sure. Yeah.
<laughs> well, there's one other thing I want to talk about in this movie, and that's the moment where Billy is aiming a gun at the detective because the detective was moments ago aiming one at him and telling him that, you know, this was it. He was going to die. Oh, God. Yeah. Let's let's describe this setup. Okay, so Billy, for the second time, kills his mother because she caught up the first time. (laughs) Right. Instead of calling the police, his first thought is to call his own his old coach and then this coach (laughs) throwing all common sense out the window responds to the murder scene without notifying law enforcement like all right so that yeah that seems really dumb but it is somewhat mitigated by the fact that the they feel like the police are against them so i think it's a little silly but i get it i get what they're going for i mean there are a lot of situations where people are in emergency situations and instead of calling for 911 or something they might call a relative or something first just because they're in shock and they don't exactly know what to do but it still feels like there should be some measure of judgment exercised by the coach because he obviously knows the police aren't for them or on their side but he did try to reach out to them at some point in the film and got you know obviously a negative reception but why would you want to instigate anything by showing up to a murder scene making things potentially worse and then having police come in in the middle of all that i i get that um i do think there is a history of gay people being uncomfortable with relying on the police in the same way that like black people are rightly suspicious of the police um and i think that i think some of that might be going on here In this scene, though, this final shootout scene, what really stands out to me is when Billy is aiming the gun at the detective, the detective says, you know, come on, give me the gun. He says, you you ain't going to shoot anybody, which shows that he knows Billy isn't a killer, right? He knows Billy's innocent. He wants to shoot Billy for other reasons. Yeah. Because he was going to kill him a moment ago. I mean, it's it's a very subtle reveal. I feel like that's something that it's very easily missed. Yeah, I mean, I've seen this movie quite a few times now, and every time I notice something new in the performances. So this this, I mean, I watched it twice in the last week. I watched the Joe Bob episode because he did this movie recently, and uh, yeah, every time I notice something different, and I'm more impressed with the performances every time. So I think that we're kind of getting into review territory. Um, Let's give final thoughts and a rating out of four. I have one more observation to make. Okay. Let me know if you noticed this on any of your 12 viewings. When we get to the penultimate basketball game, the one where Billy has consumed the poison milk. Yeah. You have his team wearing red and white jerseys. The opposing team is wearing green and yellow. But the cheerleaders in the back, they're wearing blue and white. Who are they cheering for? They're the Christian Association. They're cheering for God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which the Supreme Court says we can do now. Uh, yes, all join in a prayer circle for right. hopefully, I don't know, I'm waiting for the trolls to come out and just start having prayer circles for Satan. I'm waiting for it. I want it to happen. 
I'll be excited if that does happen. You you let me know if you hear anything. I'm uh, moderately surprised that I have never heard of this film up until Luke, you know, put it into the eight ball and it got pulled. Um, this was like such a surprising watch. Uh, I, again, I went in completely blind. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I certainly figured that the ant was going to be a major psycho focus of the film, but this movie just manages the surprise with how crazy it manages to dial up the action in what is otherwise just this normal domestic household situation. And it does it with this motif of the whole thing feeling like a, like a Hallmark original film in a way, because you have all of these, uh, very familiar family connections and drama and all that going on. And then in the middle of it, you just have a criminal murder investigation and psychopathic murder. It works and it works. Um, this movie is definitely not as exploitative as it could be, but because of this like weird framing of how it's directed and how the set design is done, it still comes off as really bizarre and like and and, and gruesome. With especially the car scene murder in the beginning, you know, Luke mentioned earlier that it was possibly lifted by the final destination guys. There's got to be a, a better origin story for like logger versus automobile. <laughs> like driver right like there's got to be some sort of like historical reference where this has happened before and the story was so gruesome that it circulated in like the press and then you know obviously movie makers latched onto it because they want to introduce you know shocking bullshit to the audience and i don't know if that works i mean i, I think everybody who's ever driven behind a logging truck has thought about this situation and now imagine if your brakes were cut and you were on like a fucking mountainside road, you know, they probably should have just drove the car into the hill and like called it a day, just take the accident, but whatever, you know, when you're under moments of stress, maybe you're not thinking so straight. So there's this movie I'm supposed to be reviewing, right? Um, I think this movie is great. My only issue is the very end. Everything is so intricately put together. There's a ton of details. It's very easy to take this movie for granted with how well composed it be with all of the relationships and editing and everything done right. The only two things I can think of off the top of my head that are that are egregious is that the ending is a little extreme, or at least it shouldn't have had the the scrolling screen fucking text at the end. And two. When we are led to believe that Julie is dead for the first time, we are introduced to her not being dead by just showing her getting up off a floor. And we don't even see her floored before the scene opens. We just open to her in a crouched position, getting up off the floor. What the fuck? Luke, do you have an answer for this? I, it, didn't, it didn't catch me off guard as much as you. Um, I just... Maybe I'm used to in horror movies the dead people getting up and walking. Re realistically, I think they just wanted to keep Julie alive for happy ending reasons. Yeah. Because otherwise, I feel like um, Aunt Cheryl here would have just kept 
hitting the mallet until there wasn't a skull left. Yeah, she would be, I feel like she would be especially enraged and aggressive towards the woman who stole her man. So while watching this film for the first time, I was really considering four stars, like really. And then this fucking ending happened. And I'm really trying not to let it ruin everything else great about this film. But ah, oh, it's just it's you trip at the finish line, right? You trip at the finish line. It sucks. I'm I'm gonna go with like three and a half because I think most of this movie is really well done. The performances are incredible. Uh, the gore and special effects are great. Um, we didn't really comment on that, but you know, there's like decapitation. There's a lot of practical special effects with the car accident, and uh, we also get to see like. It's just a ton of people murdered in like traditional Hollywood fashion. And that's always appreciated in a horror film, especially a, a slasher film. You never really want to see anything from this genre uh, cheap out on shit like that. So, yeah, three and three and a half, but like begrudgingly, because I really I really wanted to give this four stars. I actually don't differ very much from that at all. I'm OK with the with the epilogue at the end i wouldn't have put it in but like i said i don't think it betrays the character so it's it's a little wonky for me but i'll take it It, but you're right about like the slasher tropes kind of holding it back in some ways but at the same time like i don't know why i'm demanding that of this movie like i don't watch i don't watch uh you know casablanca and think Nobody talks like that. Like, why are they why are they talking that way? And nobody makes decisions like that. Of course they don't. Like it's not even trying to be real, right? It's a stylized Hollywood romance. And it's the best of all time. And it's it's wonderfully skillful. And I love the movie, but I don't expect it to be real. So I'm not sure why I need this to to you know conform to my expectations or my my sense of what's real. But for whatever reason, it does bother me a little bit when I'm watching. Uh, but otherwise, I think this movie's fantastic. It ticks all the boxes of the perversities that I like in a movie, especially the evil matriarch, um, the the acting, especially Susan Tyrell and Bo Svensson is fantastic. As I said at the beginning, this movie should have been taken more seriously. It should have been nominated for Academy Awards. Like if horror movies got more respect, it would have been, it would be remembered as a kind of masterpiece now, but because the title changed and because it wasn't promoted much by the studio and it's just for whatever reason, been sort of lost to history and only now is seeing a resurgence. And I think a lot of people saw it for the first time on Joe Bob's show. Anyway, with all that said, um, I'm really wavering before between a three and a half and a four as well. Um, but I'll, I'll err on the side of caution and say three and a half. So three and a half stars from both of us. I don't think we really agree that close very often. So, yeah, no, I, this is a, this is a, um, this is a unifying movie. It brings people together <laughs> with its amazing portrayals of, Hey, if if you're against if you're against pedophilic incest and murder, then we have something in common. <laughs> that's, that's what this movie does. Oh, 
But all right, let's consult the Magic 8-Ball and see what we're watching next week. All right, the 8-Ball is taking us in a totally different direction. Next week, we're doing the 1987 Tim Kincaid sci-fi bizarre horror flick, Mutant Hunt. Have you seen this one, Leland? I feel like I've seen this box before, but let me see. The box is really cool. So this was put out by Wizard Video. They released three Tim Kincaid movies in a row, Breeders, Robot Holocaust, and Mutant Hunt. And they all take, they're not related plot wise, but they all take place in the same universe. And if you are a fan of anything 80s and over the top and strange, you'll love this universe. I have definitely seen this box before, but I have not seen the movie. Well, you're either in for a treat or a nightmare. I'm not sure which. <laughs> either way, it's short. I, I, I feel like this movie is really short. Oh, yeah. Hour 15. Yeah. Um, and, and it flies by, it just feels like you're, it barely even feels like a movie and that might be a good or a bad thing. We'll discuss next week. So is it like the, the GBH of like sci-fi horror Ah, (laughs) that 20 20 minutes of dancing and like future discotecas? It's not as far of a stretch as you think, Hmm. but yeah, this will be a fun one to talk about. Even if you hate the movie, it'll be good conversation. So if you have not seen Mutant Hunt, check it out. And watch if you like it, watch the other two as well. We'll probably reference them at least. And join us next week. Uh, In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Or please leave us uh, a review. Rate, subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us. That'll help us out. All right, Leland, any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Thank you. And we will see you all next week for Mutant Hunt. Ha ha ha